0: As the musicians make their way down this morning, I'd like to introduce you to the first of our four guest speakers for the month of August. Dr. Fritz Guy is uh, employed as a theologian at La Sierra University, and we welcome here this morning uh, to share a word with you. The title of his sermon is called, What It Means and What It Takes to Be the Remnant. Now, it is true that classroom professors are not supposed to have favorite students. It's not a good idea but it's okay if students have favorite teachers. And so when I was wondering who and praying about who to bring this month to us, uh, it seemed to me that we ought to have Dr. Guy come because he's my favorite theologian and that was enough of a reason. Because I can. (laughs) And I started running through the list of significant contributions Fritz has had in Adventist thinking. By the way, scholars who for a vocation, bring to us their gifts that God has given them. You know, the little book, Thinking Theologically, sits on my shelf, and I consult it every three or four months. And I know that Fritz uh, sat in 1980 at Dallas and as the recording secretary, as our fundamental beliefs were crafted and voted upon and crafted and massaged some more months and weeks of work that went into that. But I thought, perhaps I'm not old enough to know if Dr. Guy is really all that. So I called Lou Vinden because you heard him say they've been friends since childhood. And so I said to Lou, you know, I I think Fritz is pretty big deal in Adventist thinking, don't you? And am I right? Or have I missed something? And Lou said, No, I think this is the preeminent living Adventist theologian that we have. So when Lou said it, I knew it was right. Uh, I I bring Fritz to you because uh, of all of these reasons, but more than that, because I've watched him care for Marsha as her her health failed, his wife Marsha, because I've watched his passion for projects like Inland Habitat and Inland uh, HIV and AIDS work, because I've watched his long-suffering ways with students in the classroom, and because after a couple of Sabbaths of complaining, we used to be church members together. He would complain, why is it when we open the front door of the church, the side doors, we, we co- it couldn't look welcoming. Is it too much work for a deacon to pick up a broom and sweep the mat and make the place look good? And I believe Fritz only said that comment two times until I began to see him with the broom in his hand at the mat, making the place look good. And bring him because he's a loving and a lovable Christian. And I know we'll be blessed. And thank you, Fritz. Be welcome here.
1: Thank you, Chris, for your kind words, and especially for the invitation to be a part of Kalamesa Camp Meeting. This month, this congregation is going to hear five different perspectives on what it means and what it takes to be a remnant in the 21st century. Now this diversity may seem confusing, but we can really think of it as an enrichment, as different people with different gifts, different backgrounds, different personalities, different sensitivities share their different understandings. Diversity can be a real blessing. And along the way, some of you may hear things you've not heard before, and they may seem a little challenging, a little strange. Some of them may even seem a little wrong. Wow. But this may be a blessing too. Part of our Adventist heritage for the last hundred years and more is the conviction that there is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed, and that all our expositions of scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. That kind of suggests if a doctrine does lose something by close investigation, it isn't a true one. And we need to know that. Now, as your pastor emphasized last Sabbath, the idea of a remnant is as old as biblical religion. The story starts in Genesis with Noah and his family and includes a number of different remnants all the way to the book of Revelation. Sometimes it's a faithful remnant, and sometimes it's just others who are different for one reason or another. Sometimes it refers to a minority, a part of a larger group that is special for one reason or another, but the specialness differs from time to time and place to place. Now in our Adventist heritage too, the idea of the remnant has had different meanings in different times. The word first appeared in the title of the very first article by Ellen Harmon that was ever printed. It was called, To the Little Remnant Scattered Abroad. And it was printed in April 1846 when Ellen was not yet 19 years old, not yet married, and not yet a Sabbath keeper. But she still referred to the little remnant. Uh, You can see an image on the screen of this one page article with about 3,600 words crammed onto that page, big page, small print. It was a description of Ellen's first two visionary experiences, one in 1844, one in 1845, and there were were 250 copies printed. But as time went on, the word remnant gathered a more specific meaning among Adventists. Joseph Bates, that sea captain who turned out to be the first Adventist theologian, read in his King James version of the Bible about a war in heaven. It's described in Revelation 12. And at the end of that conflict, he read, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And a light bulb went on in his mind. The commandments of God must include the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. A few years later, James White, Ellen's husband, explained the testimony of Jesus Christ mentioned in that same verse in the light of another verse in Revelation, Revelation 19.10, as the spirit of prophecy. And he said, wow, surely this must be a reference to the prophetic ministry of Ellen White. After that, there were many, many, many references to the remnant people of God, the remnant church, and of course when early Adventists referred to the remnant church, they were really referring to themselves. That is how they identified themselves. And that's the way the word remnant was used for 100 years or more until about 50 years ago. Then the meaning broadened. In the 1950s, a group of Adventist leaders responded to a series of questions raised by some evangelical churchmen. They wrote, we believe that finally, the remnant people will include every true and faithful follower of Christ. That meant that all who serve God in full sincerity in terms of all the revealed will of God that they now understand are presently potential members of that final remnant company as defined in Revelation 12, 17. And about the same time, the last volume of the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary said much the same thing. Then about 20 years later, in 1979, a college textbook on Adventist history came out with the title, "Light Bearers to the Remnant. What a difference a two-letter preposition can make. Not light bearers of the remnant, not the remnant light bearers, but light bearers to the remnant. Now, it seemed that all those who are serious about being God's people, whatever their culture, whatever their language, whatever their denomination, are already the remnant. So, from an early identification of the remnant as Sabbath-keeping Adventists, the meaning expanded to include all of God's people everywhere. Now, let's take a minute to go back to the text that made the idea of remnant so prominent in Adventist thinking in the first place. Let's look at it in its larger setting in Revelation 12, beginning at verse seven. Here's a new translation. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated. And there was no place in heaven for them anymore. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient servant named the devil or Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now our God's salvation and power and reign have arrived, along with his Messiah's authority. For the accuser of our brothers, the one who accuses them day and night before God, has been overthrown. By the sacrifice of the Lamb and the content of their testimony, they have conquered him. For even in the face of death, they did not cling to life so celebrate you heavens and you that dwell in them but woe to the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you in a great rage because he knows his time is short when the dragon saw that it had been thrown down to the earth it went in pursuit of the woman who had given birth to the male child but she was given the wings of a mighty angel so she could fly away from the servant to her place in the wilderness where she was to be taken care of for three and a half years. Then the serpent poured water out of its mouth like a river after the woman to carry her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out of its mouth. Then the dragon was furious at the woman and went off to attack the rest of her descendants who keep God's commandments and maintain Jesus' testimony. Well, like the rest of the book of Revelation, this passage is both fascinating and puzzling. There are all sorts of curious details in it. But what is important for us this morning is to get the big picture of what we Adventists have learned to call the great controversy. By the way, we didn't invent this term. Ellen White got it from the title of a book published in 1858 by one Horace Lorenzo Hastings, who was three or four years younger than Ellen was, and she was only 30 at the time. His book was entitled The Great Controversy Between God and Man. A notice appeared in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, in the same issue that carried two articles by James White. So it's pretty clear that Ellen was aware of this. But she made a significant change in the wording to reflect the content of Revelation 12 that we have just read. She had it, the great controversy, that was the same. But then it was between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels a significant shift. So what does our text tell us? Well first of all, it tells us that the battle between good and evil is a lot bigger than planet Earth. War broke out in heaven at the very heart of spiritual reality which is ultimate reality. This really is the great controversy. Now, We have big controversies in the Middle East and Cold War and all that stuff, but this is the great controversy. Second, in this controversy, one side is led by Michael, the Messiah, and the other by the dragon, the devil, Satan. Now, the issue is not, as we sometimes suppose, God's authority, God's right to rule. Uh, This is a no-brainer. I mean, after all, God made the whole shebang, right? Uh, God, by definition, as creator, has a right to rule. The issue here in the great controversy is the best way to govern the universe, by irresistible force or by unconditional love. Now, remember, the two sides are led respectively by Christ and by Satan, Christ, the human face of God, is the champion of unconditional love. Satan, the devil, the deceiver, is the champion of irresistible force. Now, we can fantasize a conversation at the throne of God. Satan says, God, the best way to run this show, the best way to keep these pesky humans under control is to show them who's boss. We have to show them that the boss has to be obeyed because he's the boss and that the ultimate response to sin is punishment, destruction. But Christ says, no way, that's not how you ought to run a universe. The best way to keep the human family on track is to show them how much they are loved. We have to show them that the ultimate response to sin is forgiveness. Ellen White, whose vision has molded this community of faith, never wrote anything more theologically important than this. Satan led men to conceive of God as a being whose chief attribute is stern justice, one who is a severe judge, a harsh, exacting creditor. He pictured the creator as a being who is watching with jealous eye to discern the errors and mistakes of men, that he may visit judgments upon them. It was to remove this dark shadow, this view of God, by revealing to the world the infinite love of God, that Jesus came to live among men. This is how Jesus paid it all. This is how the dragon and his angels were defeated. This is why John heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now is God's salvation and power and reign arrived, along with the Messiah's authority third and maybe maybe most important of all the outcome is already decided now those of us who've been on the planet several decades can remember the second world war and d day the day when the allied forces successfully invaded France. And when the outcome of the war was determined, there were several months more of fighting, mopping up, they called it, but the war was decided. Everybody knew, everybody in Germany and everywhere else, knew who was going to win. You may have heard a story about a group of seminary students, Protestant seminary students, who decided they needed to get a little more exercise. Good good idea. So they arranged with a nearby high school to use the gymnasium one night a week for a game of basketball. Now, that meant that the high school janitor had to stay until they finished their playing uh, so that he could lock up after they went home. Well, to pass the time while the students were playing, the janitor sat on the side, sidelines reading his Bible. And the students thought that was kind of interesting. So they said, what are you reading? And he said, the book of Revelation. Now, the students had just finished a seminary graduate course in the exegesis of Revelation in Greek. So they knew it all. And they said, uh, you know, just to have a little fun with them, and said, well, what does it mean? And he said it means that Jesus is going to win. And he had it exactly right. Indeed, in an important sense, Jesus has already won. Finally, we learn from the story in Revelation 12 that although the outcome is decided, the dragon dragon doesn't just give up and go away. The dragon goes after those on earth who keep God's commandments and maintain Jesus' witness. Jesus' witness to the infinite, unconditional, unending, universal love of God. These are people who keep God's commandments. They're wise enough to know that the commandments are all based on reality. They're all for our good. One of my students suggested a few years ago that someone needs to write a book about the commandments with the title, Ten Ways to Have More Fun. And that gets the idea of what's going on. These are people also who continue to maintain the witness of Jesus by what they say and what they do. These are remnant people in the interest of full disclosure, we need to recognize that being a remnant has a downside to it. It seems to be characteristic of us humans that we mess up every one of God's blessings. Probably the most favorite flagrant example is what we humans have done with our sexuality. We've taken what was intended to be a joyous expression and wonderful experience of love and mutuality, caring, tenderness, and we've turned it into an instrument of demand, and domination, and even brutality. An extreme example is rape as an instrument of war. And that happens. It is happening now in Africa. So we shouldn't be too surprised that uh, the idea of being a remnant uh, has sometimes turned unhealthy. We could call it remnantosis or remnantitis, uh, an abnormal condition, a diseased inflammation, something good gone wrong. What I'm talking about is a misunderstanding of ourselves. When people understand themselves as a persecuted minority, even if that's accurate, it can have some unfortunate consequences. One symptom of remnantosis or remnantitis remnantitis, is spiritual arrogance. We're God's special people. We're the first-class Christians. Now, sure, God is infinite in mercy and he loves everybody, but we're special. A few years ago, I asked a friend what the word remnant meant to her. And she said, It means that we're right and everybody else is wrong. Well, that's one way to go, I guess. Another symptom of the diseased form of remnant is a, an interesting combination of paranoia and triumphalism. They're out to get us, but we're going to win. In fact, The more we're persecuted, the more that proves that we're right. We're God's chosen people. Now, the problem with that is that it's not we're going to win, but Jesus has already won. As Pastor Chris said last Sabbath, it is God who makes a remnant. We need to remember that being a remnant has some spiritual dangers but far more important than the dangers is good news the possibilities of being a remnant in the 21st century a generation ago one of our most perceptive adventist theologians jack provancha who many of you knew introduced the idea of the remnant as a prophetic minority not a matter of status, but of mission. Not being superior, but having good news to share. Now, the little remnant scattered abroad, you remember that first use by Ellen White, the little remnant scattered abroad discovered the Sabbath and wanted to share it. Now, in those days, they were worried About the possibility of really experiencing the Sabbath. They were worried about legal obstacles to the Sabbath. In our secularized 21st century, we don't worry much, if at all, about Sunday closing laws. But the Sabbath is now spiritually more important than ever. In a world of perpetual multitasking, instant communication, constant connectedness, the flourishing of our humanness requires regular time out. In an era of -of out-of-control consumerism, the Sabbath is a powerful reminder that we do not live by cars and computers alone. In recent years, the spiritual value of the Sabbath has been increasingly recognized by a number of writers in various denominations, even beyond Christianity. The Sabbath has somehow become kind of cool, and that's good. Look at these titles, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. Got a wonderful pun, Keeping the Sabbath Holy restoring the sacred rhythm of rest, sacred time in the search for meaning, living the Sabbath, the gift of rest, and there are many, many others. Just as important as the Sabbath is the Advent hope, our Advent hope. The ultimate future of humanness is not frustration, not oblivion, but fulfillment in the presence of God. We need to think more about what this might mean, especially what it might mean for the way we live here and now. This part of the world, this part of Adventism, an obvious element of the Advent message is the gospel of good health. Again, those of us who can remember back 50 years recall when cigarettes were chic, were classy, were sophisticated. We can also remember a time when vegetarians were kind of weird and the word vegan hadn't even been thought of. Of course, we weren't the only health reformers. What made us distinctive was our recognition of the connection between our understanding of humanness, our theology of what it means to be human and good health. Many Christians were convinced that what happens when a person dies is the soul goes to heaven for eternal bliss or goes to hell for eternal punishment, but we insisted correctly, as most Christian theologians now recognize, that the biblical understanding of human existence is a multidimensional unity of body and mind and spirit. I would like to to reiterate one more element in our message for the world, one I think we need to do more to develop and explore, and that is God's unconditional love as the fundamental issue in the great controversy. Note, it is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. People are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last days of the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Now, how can we best communicate this remnant message? The good news of Sabbath rest, of Advent hope, of good health, of unconditional love. Well, First, we can remember what we've known all of our Adventist lives, and and you could recite these. From his earliest years, Jesus was possessed of one purpose. He lived to bless others. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within, when the sunshine of heaven fills the heart and was revealed in the countenance. No other influence that can surround the human soul has such power as the influence of an unselfish life. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. Second, besides remembering these things, we can do our best to live God's love. Elder Ed Mottschedler describes a situation in one of the first churches he pastored as a young minister in Missouri, decades ago now. He's not quite as old as I am, but getting there. His congregation included two elderly men, brothers, who lived together, they were widowers. They regularly sat together in a back corner of the church away from the rest of the congregation. And at first the pastor thought this was kind of odd. But he soon found out why. The two men exuded a powerful and unpleasant body odor. That explained the seating arrangement. Then the pastor discovered something else. Every Sabbath after church, a young medical couple in the congregation took these two men to their home for Sabbath dinner. After dinner, they gave each of the men a warm, leisurely bath. After the first one was bathed and dried off, he was given a clean bathrobe to wear while his brother was getting a bath. When the men were Bathed and dressed, the couple took them back to their own home. That, I think, is an example of what it means to be part of the remnant. On a sunny evening in May this year, the Department of Chemistry at La Sierra gave a retirement party for one of its longtime teachers, Ray Sheldon. The party was held in a banquet center in downtown Riverside. Uh, Among the guests was a student who worked as a lab assistant in the Department of Chemistry, so it was very appropriate for him to be there. Now, uh, however, this student was usually uh, on campus, uh, a bit scruffy, unshaved and unkempt, not the Board of Trustees ideal of a La Sierra student. But on this occasion, he was well-dressed and looked really good. When he was about to begin eating, he noticed somebody he didn't recognize, a man who'd apparently wandered in off the street, evidently homeless, and the man asked if this was a church. I mean, the people were kind of nicely dressed, and so he thought maybe he could get something to eat. When he learned that it wasn't a church, but a private party, uh, he was a bit embarrassed, and so he left. The students saw what was happening, picked up a plate of food, rushed out of the room, caught up with the man outside the building, and said, here, take some food with you. That usually scruffy student, whether he realized it or not, knew instinctively what it means to be part of the remnant. When the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within, in closing, I want to, uh, not 15 minutes yet, yeah, maybe two. <laughs> in closing, I want to share a version of uh, a fantasy I first heard from Ed Mottschedler. Imagine a couple here in Southern California, maybe in Cala Mesa or Yucaipa or Redlands or Loma Linda, who are in the process of buying a home for their growing family. The real estate agent shows them several houses, different locations. Eventually, they find one they like. So, kind of delicately, they raise the question of the price. But it turns out that the price is $50,000 more than they expected because, well, as the husband said, uh, it's just like other places we've seen in this neighborhood. There's nothing extra in the interior decoration, or in the landscaping. The view's okay, but it isn't all that great. Uh, Why the extra 50,000? The real estate agent smiles and says, I thought you'd ask about that. The answer is very simple. You see, the neighbors on both sides are Seventh-day Adventists. And at that point, the wife explains... Only $50,000? we would pay 100000 for that. The agent says, I'd figured you'd see that it was a good deal. Now, this is a fantasy, right? But wouldn't it be wonderful if we Adventists were the kind of people that had that kind of reputation, if people knew that we are the best kind of neighbors to have, if people said, you know, Those Adventists are something else. If there's a problem in the community, you can count on them being there to address it. If there's a need, they're going to be there to meet that need. These Adventists really make this neighborhood a better place to live. That is an important part of what it means to be a remnant in the 21st century. O God, help us always to remember the good news we have to share about Sabbath rest, about Advent hope, about good health, about unconditional love. And lead us, we pray, also to be good news, people in whom the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. Help us, O Lord, to see that this is not a demand, but an invitation, an opportunity, a possibility of grace. In the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: To the one God who is more than enough, be the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church says, Amen. If you came to be prayed with this morning, we just want to remind you, we're starting that these last couple of weeks. There'll be someone here down the front piano side, someone by the garden chapel up front, and out in the courtyard. If you'd like to be prayed with, just come forward. And until next Sabbath, go in peace.